Verity Podcast for Friday, November 17th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Biden and she agree to resume military communications. A U.N. watchdog warns of Iran's advancing nuclear enrichment. The U.K.'s David Cameron meets Zelensky in Ukraine. The Pentagon fails its accounting audit for the sixth year in a row. George Santos announces he won't seek re-election following a scathing House report. Biden reportedly won't face charges in the classified documents case. A Russian artist is sentenced to seven years for spreading anti-war messages. Child and teen cancer deaths in the U.S. are found to have fallen 24 percent in the last two decades. Study links a drop in global fertility to pesticides. And Meta calls for parental control on app stores. Biden and she meet and agree to resume military communications. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Associated Press, Sky News, The Independent, and Channel News Asia. U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met for the first time in a year on Wednesday as the two held talks for approximately four hours in California before attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, forum in an attempt to revive relations between both countries. During a post-meeting press conference, Biden described the talks as some of the most constructive and productive discussions we've had. Later in the day, she claimed that both nations needed to build more bridges and pave more roads between each other. The talks saw the two leaders leaders agree to resume military-to-military communications, which were severed after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan last year with an anonymous senior U.S. official claiming that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was to meet with his Chinese counterpart once Beijing appoints a defense minister. According to Biden, the two confirmed that each one of us can pick up the phone in order to be heard immediately. The two further agreed to increase crackdowns on fentanyl production, as well as to engage in further discussions concerning the risks of artificial intelligence. However, when asked whether he stood by comments earlier in the year describing Xi as a dictator, Biden reaffirmed his stance under the prefix that Chinese president ran a communist country based on a form of government totally different to ours. A Chinese foreign ministry readout claimed that Xi called on Biden and the U.S. to stop arming Taiwan, describing reunification as unstoppable while a senior U.S. official stated that Biden asked Xi to respect the self-governing island's upcoming elections, while affirming that Washington's long-standing position wouldn't change. Well, thanks for those facts, Melissa. On this program, we also like to provide some narrative spins. Let's start with the pro-China narrative from China Daily. Xi has informed Biden that China-U.S. relations have two potential future paths, that of prosperous cooperation or chaos and confrontation. Agreements from Wednesday's summit advocating a reopening of various communication channels have hopefully thawed tensions, with Xi and Beijing adamant that the two powers cannot turn their backs on each other. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from NPR Online News. While certainly a step in the right direction for U.S.-China bilateral relations, Biden rightly remained tough on certain issues, reaffirming his description of Xi as a dictator and ensuring a crackdown on China's role in fentanyl production. 
With the world watching, the U.S. made great strides in mending ties with China. However, only time will tell if Beijing's welcome shift in tone translates into continued action. We also have a cynical narrative on this story from Politico. Actions speak louder than words, and the reality remains that both China and the U.S. continue to expand their nuclear stockpile, a topic of little discussion during the much-anticipated summit between the two leaders. Analysts fear the potential of a tit-for-tat nuclear war between the two, and this overarching worry will only continue to loom over any U.S.-China summit until frank conversations are truly had. And we get the occasional nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 17% chance of a U.S.-China war before 2035. Did you hear the news about how uh, So this summit was taking place in uh, San Francisco? Did you hear the news that they've cleared out all the homeless people from downtown San Francisco somehow for, for, this, for this summit? Oh, wh- where did they put them temporarily? Great question. I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone does. Iran has further increased its enriched uranium stockpile. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Israel National News, The New Arab, Iran International, The Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. Iran has enough uranium, enriched up to 60%, and thus almost weapons-grade to build three nuclear bombs, while still failing to cooperate with the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, in vital areas. Confidential reports from the UN nuclear watchdog revealed on Wednesday. Iran's stockpile of 60% purity uranium grew by 6.7 kilograms, or 14.8 pounds, to 128.3 kilograms, or 282.9 pounds. Since the last report on September 4th, the IAEA said in one of two reports distributed to member states. This equates to more than three times the amount of 42 kilograms, or 92.6 pounds, needed for a nuclear bomb if enrichment were to continue. In its quarterly report, the IAEA also estimates that Iran's total stockpile of enriched uranium has increased by 691 kilograms, to 4,486 kilograms, or 9,891 pounds, from August. Under the 2015 nuclear deal, Iran was limited to enriching uranium to 3.67% purity and holding a uranium stockpile of 300 kilograms, or 661 pounds. The UN agency condemned Tehran's decision announcing in September to strip several IAEA inspectors of their accreditations as extreme and unjustified, stressing that the move directly and seriously compromised the organization's work. A second IAEA report issued on Tuesday said that no progress was made in investigating uranium traces found at several undeclared sites in Iran. It also notes there had been no advances in reinstalling additional monitoring equipment that was removed last year on Tehran's instructions. Major world powers reached a deal with Iran in 2015 aimed at curbing Tehran's nuclear program in return for the lifting of international sanctions. After the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from the deal under President Donald Trump and reimposed sanctions, Tehran resumed its nuclear activities, while efforts to revive the deal have so far failed. All right, those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins with the pro-Iran narrative from Press TV. While the allegedly autonomous IAEA condemns Iran's uranium enrichment to 60% purity, The West prefers to conceal the fact that Iran's move is a reaction to the breach of commitments by certain signatories to the 2015 nuclear deal. 
Moreover, unlike many other countries in the world, Iran is not seeking nuclear weapons, but is rather sending a message that illegal sanctions must be lifted. It's ludicrous for Washington to unilaterally terminate the nuclear deal and reimpose draconian sanctions while demanding strict compliance from Tehran. And the anti-Iran narrative comes from Politico. The new IAEA report yet again proves that Iran is closer than ever to building nuclear weapons. With the 2015 nuclear deal, the West aimed to control the threat posed by the Iranian regime, but succumbed to the false assumption that Tehran is a rational actor. A nuclear weapon in the hand of the ruling mullahs, combined with Iran's increasingly advanced missile technology, could have apocalyptic consequences. The only way for the West to avert this scenario is to maximize military, economic, and diplomatic pressure on the regime in Tehran. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before 2030. The UK's David Cameron travels to meet Zelensky in Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Newsweek, and the Institute for the Study of War. Former British Prime Minister David Cameron, who this week returned to government in a new role as Foreign Secretary, traveled to Ukraine and met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday. It was his first overseas trip of the new job. Cameron said the UK would continue to provide moral and diplomatic support to Ukraine, but further reassured Zelensky that above all, the UK would continue providing the military support that you need, not just this year and next year, but however long it takes. Zelensky, meanwhile, thanked the UK for its continued support. The visit comes amid trying times for Ukraine. Earlier in this week, it was reported that Russia amassed 40,000 troops near the Donetsk city of Avdivka and had surrounded the city from three directions. In the latest analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military-affiliated think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, it reported that Russia continues to make battlefield gains near Avdivka. With Ukraine's earlier counteroffensive appearing to have died down, Russia also launched renewed offensive operations across the front lines. Analysis from the ISW earlier in the week reported that Russian forces are likely trying to regain the theater-level initiative in Ukraine by conducting several simultaneous offensive operations in eastern Ukraine. In its latest analysis, Russia is reported to have made gains in the Luhansk region, namely near Kupyansk. However, Russia's efforts in the Zaporizhia region were reportedly rebuffed, and it is Ukraine that may localize gains, according to the ISW. Its analysis also showed that heavy fighting continued in the outskirts of Bakhmut, where both Russia and Ukraine have traded territory in recent days. However, in the southern Kherson region, where fighting had earlier been bogged down by flooding caused by the collapse of the Nova Kakovka Dam in June, Ukraine this week reported successes there. After gaining a foothold on the east bank of the Dnipro River, which not only cuts through Kherson but divides Russia and Ukraine's control of the region, Ukraine has continued to conduct larger-than-usual operations, according to ISW. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative directly from the UK government. Russia thinks it can wait this war out and that the West will eventually turn its attention elsewhere. This couldn't be further from the truth. The UK and its Western partners will continue to support Ukraine in fighting against Russian aggression for as long as the country needs. Here's the pro-Ukraine narrative from Ukranska Pravda. 
Ukraine continues to appreciate the UK's vast support, particularly as the world's attention has shifted to the Middle East. It's a tragedy what's happening in that region, but Ukraine also needs to be focused on because of the catastrophic ongoing tragedy stemming from Russia's ruthless invasion. And the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. It's time for Ukraine to realize that it cannot defeat Russia militarily. The sooner they realize this, the sooner the conditions for a peaceful settlement will be created. Metaculus wants to throw their hats in the ring with another nerd narrative. This one's saying there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. The Pentagon fails its audit for the sixth year in a row. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Stars and Stripes, Daily Caller, Reuters, and Defense News. The U.S. Department of Defense failed an independent audit of its accounting systems for the sixth year in a row, the Pentagon confirmed on Wednesday. Since the Pentagon began the practice in 2018, the last government department to do so following a Congress requirement in 1990, it is yet to pass. This year, auditors rated seven of the nearly 30 sub-audits as clean, the same figure as last year. One sub-audit was rated the next lowest level of qualified, three were ongoing, and 18 received failing grades. Nonetheless, Comptroller Michael McCord tried to reassure the public that there's progress despite the same top-line rating. He said auditing the department's $3.8 trillion in assets and $4 trillion in liabilities is a massive undertaking, but the improvements and changes we are making every day as a result of these audits positively affect every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, guardian, and DOD civilian. McCord said that one area of progress was the Pentagon's movement towards balanced books with the U.S. Treasury Department, a move that should help in preventing fraud. A second was the Pentagon's use of automated programs or bots for repetitive tasks in order to free up accountants' time for more important work. According to the Comptroller, the use of robots for such tasks has helped save up to 600,000 man-hours in the Navy and Air Force alone. The last development, he said, was more related to the battlefield. McCord said that after Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, the Pentagon scrutinized its own stockpiles. He said that meant when the Israel-Hamas war broke out last month, the U.S. knew exactly the makeup of its weapons and their conditions. Thanks for that story, Scott. We'll begin this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative from War on the Rocks. It's no surprise at all that the Defense Department has once again failed its yearly audit. Until the Pentagon tries to pioneer a new system of accounting for its vast assets and equipment, rather than continuously depending on outdated methods, it will repeat these failures year after year. Not only is the U.S. military working with ancient auditing systems, but it's also spending more money to conduct these reviews, almost a billion dollars a year, than private companies who have no issues getting their books in order. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from the U.S. Department of Defense. The Defense Department is one of the largest organizations in the world, and auditing its vast web of assets and equipment across the globe is an extremely difficult undertaking. While the department received the same top-line grade as last year, it continues to make incremental progress toward a clean audit. While this doesn't mean the DOD has lost its assets, the Pentagon knows that its outdated auditing systems are causing an unnecessary mess and is working toward modernizing as quickly as possible. Now, they say their um, Congress requ- required this in 1990. Why are they only starting the practice in 2018? And, and follow-up question, do you think they're using software from the 1990s and that's why this is such a problem? I think we would be shocked 
at the uh, archaic software that's used in 2005. This was, you know, this is almost 20 years ago. But in 2005, I got a job with the uh, Oakland A's ticketing department. Uh, Oakland A's who are moving to Las Vegas as of today. Great. Um, Sorry, (laughs) Bay Area. Uh, And we, the computer programs we use for ticketing were ancient. They were like, they looked like they were from the 80s. And, and this was in 2005. Now, I think they've since changed. But people get comfortable, especially, you know, old people, people who are in power, people who the old system worked for because they're in power now and they don't want to change anything. So, um, I mean, there is something to be said. Like, for instance, I use a bunch of audio equipment and I don't update my computer right when the updates come out because sometimes the programs I use don't work, you know, until things get straightened out. And um, so, you know, if you really need to use something, you don't want to be on like the forefront of upgrades, but you don't want to be. If you wait too long, then your also your programs stop working. You want to be in that right. like sweet spot. So I would say 1990 is probably a little too long. I mean, I, I don't know. George Santos won't seek re-election following an ethics report. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, CBS, Forbes, NPR Online News, and ABC. Representative George Santos, Republican of New York, has announced that he will not seek re-election in 2024 following the release of a House Ethics Committee report concluding that the politician had fraudulently exploited every aspect of his House candidacy for his own financial profit. Santos, 35, has already pleaded not guilty to federal charges accusing him of laundering money to fund personal expenses, as well as charging bank cards of campaign donors without permission. Santos was elected for the first time in 2022. Santos had claimed earlier in the year that despite his changes, he would continue to seek re-election next year. Writing on X, however, the representative stated that his latest decision had been made as his family deserves better than to be under the gun from the press, with his lawyer dismissing the report as a hit piece. Santos was initially charged with 13 offenses before a further 10 were added. Santos' campaign treasurer, Nancy Marks, pleaded guilty last month to conspiracy to defraud the federal government, while his fundraiser, Sam Miele, pleaded guilty earlier this week to wire fraud. Santos' trial is expected to begin next year. The report claims that alongside Santos' pre-existing charges, the committee found new evidence of alleged violations, including accusations that he used campaign funds for personal travel and cosmetics that it would pass on to the Department of Justice. While the House Ethics Committee didn't recommend a formal sanction against Santos Committee Chair Michael Guest, Republican of Mississippi, announced that he would introduce a resolution onto the House floor aimed at expelling the representative from his public office. All right. Unsurprisingly, we have some opposing narrative views on this story, starting with the Democratic spin from the Daily Beast. Whether it be trivial, strange or grave matters, Santos's entire life story is saturated in deceit. The representative's web of lies is astonishingly broad and diverse, as outlined by the House's report. He must be voted out. Here's the Republican narrative from Fox News. Santos, like every American, is owed due process. There's a reason why no representative has been expelled during an ongoing trial. To remove Santos is to set a bad precedent. And his fate will be determined by the justice system in due course. A report says Biden mishandled material but is unlikely to be charged in the documents case. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Daily Wire. The Wall Street Journal reported Thursday that the federal prosecutor investigating President Joe Biden's handling of classified documents during his time as vice president is preparing a report that will be critical of how Biden and his aides handled the material, but the president is unlikely to face criminal charges. U.S. Department of Justice Special Counsel Robert Hur is expected to release his report on the investigation in the next couple months. Hur has reportedly interviewed more than 100 of Biden's personal and professional associates, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken and former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Hur was appointed to oversee the investigation in January after the DOJ launched its investigation and found classified documents from the Obama administration in Biden's Penn Biden Center office as well as his Delaware home. Biden's team found 10 records marked as classified in his Washington, D.C. office last year, while searches by Biden's lawyers and the FBI found more materials in his homes in Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Her's potential decision to not pursue charges would come at the same time former President Donald Trump is facing criminal charges in a similar case led by special counsel Jack Smith. Those were the facts. Here are the spins, starting with a Democratic narrative from ABC News. If Biden doesn't face charges, it's because he's complied with the DOJ's investigation every step of the way and promptly reported any materials he may have possessed with full transparency and good intention. Meanwhile, Trump failed to turn over requested documents and has been combative since he left office. These two cases are not the same. And the pro-Trump narrative from Fox News. There was no way Biden's own DOJ was ever going to thoroughly investigate him in a legitimate manner. Where there's smoke, there's fire, and that's why House Republicans are conducting an impeachment inquiry to get to the bottom of all of Biden's potential malfeasance and the interconnections. Here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 25% chance that Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. Rehoboth Beach is a nice place. It is nice. It's a, it's a good little getaway. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it is nice. Yeah, uh, we the went beach. there during the pandemic and walked around. We don't have a, a beach house there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but we it was you know we used to like just go to boardwalks and stuff and walk around when you weren't allowed to do anything. Yeah, and, uh, like, like this is summer vacation. One. Yeah, so, it's fun, right, kids? A Russian artist is sentenced to seven years for anti-war messages. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Moscow Times, Reuters, BBC News, NBC, and the Associated Press. Russian artist Alexandra Skochelenko was sentenced to seven years in prison Thursday for swapping supermarket price tags with messages critical of the war on Ukraine. Skochelenko, 33, was found guilty of deliberately spreading false information about Russia's military and is banned from using the Internet for the next three years in addition to the jail term. Soon after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, Skochelenko replaced grocery labels with statements that listed the number of casualties in the war and called Russia a fascist state. She has been detained since April 2022. Skochelenko's arrest came a month after Russia outlawed the distribution of false statements regarding its military and the war. Since she spent 19 months in a pre-trial detention center, her prison sentence will be reduced by more than two years, since each day in detention counts as one and a half days of regular time served. In her final statement, Skochelenko, who denies that the accusations she deliberately disseminated fake news about the army, 
told the judge that she was a pacifist. Her lawyers expressed concern about the artist receiving proper medical treatment while in prison, as she has celiac disease, which requires a gluten-free diet. The verdict comes the same day that former Deputy Energy Minister Vladimir Milov was found guilty in absentia of the same charge and received an eight-year sentence. All right, Melissa, we have an anti-Russian spin from the Associated Press. Vladimir Putin has always been an anti-freedom dictator, but he has dialed up the notch to 11 since his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Over the last 20 months, the Russian autocrat has criminalized any form of dissent and is targeting artists like Alexandra Sochalenko, who simply want to promote peace. Russia's fascism continues to show its ugly teeth and something must be done to restore basic human rights. Here's the pro-Russian narrative from RT. It's ironic to hear the West condemn alleged violations of free speech when dissidents are silenced every day in their so-called democratic countries. Intelligence agencies spy on dissidents and coordinate with social media companies to silence people who dare to question the established narrative. The reality of this case is Skochalenko faced a fair trial and was found guilty of breaking the law, which should always incur ramifications. Child and teen cancer death rates fell 24% over 20 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, U.S. News and World Report, and the New York Times. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced Thursday that rates of cancer for children and teens in the country fell 24% between 2001 and 2021. The report looked at the rates for black, Hispanic, and non-Hispanic white kids up to 19 years old, who made up 92% of all youth cancer deaths in 2021. According to the report, the overall cancer death rate for those under 20 years old in 2021 was 2.1 deaths per 100,000 a significant drop from 2.75 per 100,000 in 2001, but slightly up from the rate of 2.09 per 100,000 in both 2019 and 2020. The total number of deaths dropped from 2,226 in 2001 to 1,722 in 2021. The report, which looked at deaths from common forms of cancer like leukemia, brain cancer, and a category of bone cancer called bone and articular cartilage cancer, also divided the data by each of the three racial groups. From 2011 to 2021, the rate dropped only slightly for Hispanic and black youths, while the rate for whites was 19 to 20 percent lower than their black and Hispanic peers. During the 10 years before 2011, the rates for black, Hispanic, and white youths all fell between 15 and 17 percent, though the next 10 years saw the continued trend for white kids while Blacks and Hispanics were little changed. Overall, between 2001 and 2021, the rates for white, Hispanic, and Black youths fell 27%, 19%, and 12% respectively. Over the 20-year period, death rates for females under 20 declined by 30%, compared to 19% for males. Girls also saw a separate 9% decline from 2020 to 2021, while boys endured an 8% increase. While death rates have dropped, the number of youth cancer diagnoses has climbed for more than a decade, with rates of childhood leukemia rising the most between 1998 and 2018. The American Cancer Society said leukemia remains the most prevalent at one-third of all pediatric cancer cases, though the death rate for brain cancer, the second most prevalent, 
was 23% higher in 2021 than for leukemia. <clears throat> Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from the New York Times. The rate at which children are beating cancer today is a tremendous success that should be celebrated. However, these numbers are usually in reference to five-year survival rates, which for a child in particular is devastatingly short. The reason pediatric cancer is so unique is that it often originates in utero, meaning it can progress before a baby is even born. With only 4% of federal cancer research funding going towards pediatric cancer, the U.S. is far from reaching the 10, 20, or 40-year survival rates these children deserve. Narrative B comes from Voice of America. The problem isn't that cancer research isn't advancing fast enough, but rather that it's being applied inequitably. This report shows that white children over the past 10 years were far more likely to survive cancer than their black and Hispanic counterparts, which is a sign that certain populations are receiving more resources than others. Cancer won't be defeated until every patient, regardless of color, receives an equal amount of time, energy, and support. And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that there will be a breakthrough in the treatment of hard-to-treat cancers by June 2031. A new study finds a global fertility drop is linked to common pesticides. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Express Healthcare Management, NBC, Health Day, and the Times of India. A review of 25 studies spanning nearly 50 years has linked exposure to two widely used classes of insecticides, organophosphates and N-methylcarbamates, to lower sperm concentration in adult men worldwide. The study, published in the Journal of Environmental Health Perspectives on Wednesday, has found that men who worked in industries like construction and agriculture had significantly lower sperm concentration than their counterparts employed in other sectors. While organophosphates, the main component of nerve gas and herbicides, are extensively used in agriculture and lawn upkeep, and methylcarbamates control pests in fruit and vegetable crops. Though the researchers aren't sure how these pesticides are affecting sperm concentrations, quote, given the body of evidence, they suggest more research be conducted to ensure their exposure to men concerned about their fertility is reduced. Co-researcher Lauren Ellis has said it's crucial to approach the issue from a public health perspective, given the insecticide's ubiquity in the environment and documented reproductive hazards. The study comes after a recent study found that men between the ages of 18 and 22 who use mobile phones more than 20 times a day had a 30% higher risk of having low sperm concentration and a 21% higher risk for a low overall sperm count. Well, thanks for those troubling facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from The Conversation. Scientists have obtained solid evidence of widespread declining sperm counts for decades. First, a 1992 study found overall sperm count dropping 50% over the previous 60 years, and then a 2019 study found that moving sperm declined 10% over the previous 16 years. These numbers should concern everyone and prompt both voters and their governments to take a stand against the use of chemicals that cause infertility. Scientific American gives us a narrative B. While some studies, though certainly not all, have shown that sperm count is dropping, none have been able to conclusively demonstrate a deterioration of sperm quality. It's also important to recognize that many factors could be contributing to declining sperm concentrations, including whether they're immobilized before they're counted. 
Alongside pesticides, obesity rates, and rising temperatures may also be playing a role. The issue needs more analysis before the world begins to fixate on a single cause and therefore solution. I, I feel attacked, <laughs> Melissa. Oh, do you? Yes. This, by by this news report? By or this by, news uh, story, yeah. I feel yeah. like it's sending a message. You got to get that phone out of your pocket, I guess. Yeah. Oh, you're good. You got two. That's true. Yeah, it actually might be a good thing at this point. Yeah, let's let's let me get another phone. Our final story, Meta calls for app stores to enforce parental approvals. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Medium, Engadget, Washington Post, CBS News, and The Guardian. In a blog post published Wednesday, Meta has called for federal legislation to force app stores, rather than social media companies, to get parents' approval whenever a child between the ages of 13 and 16 downloads an app. According to Meta's global head of safety, Antigone Davis, the law would make it mandatory for app stores to notify parents when their teens want to download an app, similar to how parents are alerted when their children attempt to make in-app purchases. Meta argues its solution would allow parents to govern their child's social media use negating the need for everyone to verify their age multiple times across multiple apps. While the blog store does not mention Google's Play Store or Apple's App Store by name, if implemented, Meta's proposal could shift much of its responsibility of shielding children using its platforms on rival tech giants. Meta's blog post comes the same day the Senate asked Mark Zuckerberg, Meta's CEO, to provide documents related to senior executives' knowledge of the mental and physical health harms associated with its platforms. This follows federal lawsuits filed by dozens of U.S. states in October, including California and Wisconsin, accusing Meta of deliberately engineering its popular apps to turn children into social media addicts to boost profits. Thanks, Scott. And we'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from CNN. Meta has intentionally worked to attract younger users, so far as introducing harmful features on Instagram and Facebook that addict teens and compromise their mental health, as it competes with rival apps such as Snapchat and TikTok. The tech giant needs to do more, like devote adequate resources and staff to safeguarding its most vulnerable users, to protect teens using its platforms rather than pass the buck to parents and app stores. And Narrative B comes from Meta itself. While implementing tighter controls and processes to stop teens from downloading apps without a parent's approval isn't a foolproof plan, it may be time that the app stores use their gatekeeping power for a broader purpose. Placing the responsibility for parental controls on app stores could add another level of protection, which could facilitate more security and help preserve potentially sensitive identifying information. And the nerds have the last word today from Metaculus saying there's a 4% chance that meta platforms will sell Instagram or WhatsApp before 2025. I was reading a social media post about how uh, Facebook, according to this user, tends to, when they're ahead in a certain technology, they promote privatizing it and monetizing it. When they're behind in a given technology, this person posits they propose open source. Um, uh. I do notice here that Meta is proposing tighter constrictions on app stores, and Meta doesn't really have a good app store. Other companies do. You know, Google and Apple do. So 
Right. Uh, that, that's the cynic in me. I don't know. But that's just, I've, 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 I've something to think about. I mean, something that to makes about. sense. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, uh, big companies tend to pass the buck, right? You know, push the blame onto someone else. Yeah. That, well, you know, they could be doing a lot more to protect people from my product. And that's their problem. Right. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, November 17th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Thank you.